If you're new, that's a little tradition we have, <laughs> clapping for announcements. I'm going to turn this off. I don't know how to turn it off. That seemed to work. Good morning. It's great to see you here. Um, Joe kind of hit on this theme already this morning, but I know that some of you are coming in this morning and just like, whoa, hard morning, hard week. Um, I'm definitely coming into this morning that way, so I would just love to open in a word of prayer to start our time this morning. So would you pray for me? Oh, would you pray for me and also with me? Okay. <laughs> Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this place to come and worship you. We thank you for time to hear from your word. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love for us. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Pray that we would hear you very clearly through your word this morning, and we thank you for an opportunity to open your word and hear from you. We pray that you would speak clearly this morning, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. We pray all of this in the name of your son. Amen. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> we are continuing a series in the book of Acts that will be going on for quite some time. It's called Unleashed to Change the World. And we're continuing that series this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. And I just want to warn you ahead of time, the, the portion of Scripture that we're looking at this morning is so big and so dense. There, we could preach like five sermons on this passage alone. We're going to be looking at the sermon of Peter at the beginning of the book of Acts, and there is so much in here, it's impossible to unpack it all. So I just want to warn you in advance, there's a lot of things here that we're going to talk about and move on from because what we want to do is get a, an overview of what it is that's really happening here. What is happening in Peter's sermon and why is it important that we look at it? And before we do that, I just want to give a little bit of um, background on Peter himself, because I think it's important to know who is giving this sermon that we're looking at in the book of Acts this morning. Um, we're going to set up kind of what's led to this moment in a minute, but just think with me about Peter, and if you know anything about him and you remember his life, sort of his recent history to this event, this is the Peter who's bold and outspoken who's been following Jesus, who's seen his whole ministry. This is the Peter who's told Jesus, I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. And then moments later, he denies knowing him. He denies any association with him. Three separate occasions he does that. And he's completely broken over it. This is the Peter who knew who Jesus was. He clearly understood, at least in part, who Jesus was, and he walked with him through all of this ministry, and then when it got really tough and really difficult, Peter just completely whiffs. He just missed it. He totally missed it. This is the Peter who, after Jesus dies, looks at the other disciples and says, hey, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples are like, yeah, we'll go with you. We find him exactly where Jesus found him at the beginning. He just went right back to what he was doing before. They're out in the boat, they're fishing, and this man walks up onto the shore. They're not very far offshore, about 100 yards. This man walks up and says, little children, it's very early in the morning, he says, hey, little kids, did you catch anything? 
and they haven't caught a thing. He says, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they do, and they pull up this huge haul of fish. And if you're familiar with the gospel story, you remember that this has happened before. Peter immediately recognizes who it is. He doesn't wait for the boat to get to Jesus. He jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus. That's how desperately he loves him and wants to be with him. That's how excited he is to see him. And they have breakfast together. And after breakfast, Jesus asks him this question that kills him. He says, Peter, do you love me? After all that they've been through, that's the question that Jesus asked Peter. And Peter says, yes, you know I love you. And Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. And Jesus asks him a third time. And by the third time, Peter is pleading with Jesus to believe him. Yes, you know that I love you. The question cuts Peter to the core because he's like, Lord, you know I love you. And I know I blew it. And there's some significance to the fact that Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus asks him three times and this is almost the restoration or the redemption of Peter, this moment, this encounter with Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' answer when he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love me. Do you remember what Jesus says to him three times? Feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And Peter does. And so what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 2 is that (laughs) Peter does this in a big way. Peter comes out swinging because when Peter's life is redeemed in this way, he comes out and he comes out hitting hard. Why does it matter that we know Peter's story this morning? Doesn't Peter's story sound like the way that we've characterized the book of Acts? When we talked about the book of Acts, we said that this is a story about the book of Acts is telling the story about ordinary people equipped with an irresistible message, doing extraordinary things because they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. Peter's a regular guy. Peter makes mistakes. Peter, when times got hard, just completely missed it, completely whiffed. And yet, Jesus kind of has this restorative encounter with him and says, Peter, feed my sheep. And so Peter says, okay, I will. And then the context of our passage this morning, if you remember, in Jesus' last conversation with the disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says, guys, you're going to want to hang around here for a little bit because you're about to be baptized with the Spirit of God. And they do. And last week, Clint talked us through what that looked like. This very strange encounter with God. And by the time we left them, they're like pouring out of this house last week proclaiming the mighty works of God, and everybody around them is hearing them in their own dialect, in their own language. It is the the strangest thing. It is really bizarre. And so this morning where we pick up in Acts chapter 2 is basically Peter's sermon saying, answering the question of the people around them, which is what the heck is going on at Pentecost? This is the most bizarre thing. In fact, if you turn with me, If you have your Bible, to Acts chapter 2, if you're using um, the Bibles that we have here, that's going to be on page 910, and if you want one, they're on the aisles here. You're welcome to grab one. You can raise your hand. We'll pass one down to you if you want, or you can just look over someone's shoulder, share with someone near you. But if we just back up a couple of verses, in Acts chapter 2, verse 12 
It says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? The question of the day is, what is going on? Verse 13, but others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Basically, they're drunk. That's what's going on. So that's where we pick up. That's where we are this morning when we pick up the story. We're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to get through most of chapter 2 this morning. But here's Peter's answer. Peter's going to answer the question of what is going on at Pentecost, and why is this happening? And you remember, as Clint told us last week, there are all of these people in Jerusalem, all of these devout Jews from all over the place have come together. God's doing it here at this time for this specific reason. He's gathered all of these people together, and then this happens. And so here's Peter's answer at the beginning of chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So he says, hey, hold on, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. Now, some of you have some life experience that would counter this argument, okay? <laughs> You remember who he's talking to, first of all, thousands of devout Jews. They're not big early morning drinkers, but he's going to give a, a better argument here in case that one doesn't hold water. So he says, first of all, it's nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk. Second of all, you have to remember what's going on here. These aren't just people wandering out of a house just blathering nonsense. They're proclaiming the mighty works of God and everyone can understand them in his own language, in his own dialect. There's something significant going on here. Verse 16, he says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. He says what you're seeing, what you're witnessing is not an act of drunkenness, it's an act of God. He says what you're seeing is a group of people who are filled with the spirit, just like Joel said it would happen in the last days, that God would pour out his spirit on his people. And who is the spirit going to be poured out on? It's interesting if we look at that. He says, men and women, young and old, slave and free, God is going to pour out his spirit on everyone who trusts in him. There is no longer, he's like obliterating age distinction and class distinction and gender distinction in the pouring out of his spirit. I only mention that to just say God's a lot more progressive than people give him credit for. And he continues Quoting from the prophet Joel, he says, verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, 
Look at what the prophet Joel said. These are all devout Jews. They know their Old Testament. He's reminding them of something they've heard before. He said, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. And the beginning of that is going to look like the Messiah, and people are going to prophesy because they're filled with the spirit. And the end of that is going to look like the second coming. The end of that is going to look like Jesus coming back. And it's this like apocalyptic vision of the magnificent, glorious return of Christ. So he's reminding them that Joel has already said that. And Peter makes the argument that Jesus is the Lord because the Spirit has come. That means the Messiah has come. That means we are in the last days. He's saying, guys, you don't understand what you're seeing here. This is really significant. This is a new era. This means the Messiah has come. This means God's Spirit has been poured out on His people just like it said would happen in the Old Testament. This is a big deal. You are witnessing an act of God, and we are in a new age now. And then he's going to go on to make the argument that not only has the Messiah come, but the Messiah was Jesus. He continues in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, guys, Jesus displayed all the evidence. Jesus displayed all the proof that he was the Messiah. Everything that you've hoped for, we found in Jesus. He was attested to you by God, he says, with mighty works, with wonders, with signs, and all of this stuff he did right in front of you, and you missed it. Jesus was crucified, which he mentions, by the way, was not a surprise to God. God was not like, oh no, now what am I going to do? They killed him. He says, not a surprise to him. He knew it would happen. It's part of his plan of redeeming his people. God raised him from the dead. Peter says, you killed him, God raised him. Maybe you're wondering, because I wonder this when I read this, how exactly did all of these people just get blamed for crucifying Jesus? Peter makes this pretty blanket statement. He's like, you did it. Well, there's thousands of people here. They didn't all do it, not personally. What is the point that he's making to them? What is it that held Jesus on the cross? What is it that made the cross necessary? Sin. It was sin and rejection and rebellion from God that made the cross necessary in the first place. And so they crucified Jesus. We could very easily lump ourselves in with that as well. I was trying to think of a way to explain this, to kind of unpack the theology of this, because this is a big thing. We don't have time to really talk through all of it, but it reminded me of a hymn that I think expresses it better than I can. So let me read you the words of this hymn. You're probably very familiar with it, but just listen to this. I think this says what Peter is saying. It says, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. 
Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. It was my sin who held, that held him there. I think of that a lot when we sing that hymn. And I think that's what Peter is trying to get across here, this idea of Jesus who you collectively crucified and killed. So he, he looks back at Joel and he says, you remember what Joel said about the Spirit? That's what you're seeing right now, guys. You don't understand what's happening. You're seeing the Spirit of God poured out. Now he's going to point them to David, someone else they would know and acknowledge and recognize. Verse 25 He says, for David says concerning him, he just told them about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So this psalm of David, which they know, in which David is expressing his confidence in God. He's expressing his trust in him as his ever-present help in every facet of his life. If you look at that verse, look at all the things he says. He says his heart, his tongue, his flesh, expressing confidence in, his God, in God, his trust in him, saying in every way God protects and provides for me and what I feel what I love, what I care about, what I say, what I do, expressing the fact that he doesn't fear because God is with him. But Peter is going to make the argument that David is not just talking about himself. David is not just expressing confidence in God, that David's words are actually prophetic. And look at what Peter says here in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He said, this Jesus who God raised up, you crucified. And he says, look at what David said. David wasn't just expressing confidence in God. David was prophesying about the Messiah. And he's like, guys, I can promise you, we can walk over to David's grave right now, and he's in it. He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about Jesus, God's chosen one, that Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these prophetic truths. So Peter says, first look at what Joel said. Joel said the Spirit would be poured out in the last days. Then look at what David said. David prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. And guess what, guys? 
you missed it. The Messiah came and he died and God raised him from the dead and you missed the whole thing. And then this is what he says. This is the conclusion of his sermon. I don't have the boldness of Peter. Listen to this. Verse 32. It starts, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We all know it's true. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, saw, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he said, God said he would send the Spirit, and guess what? God poured out the Spirit on Jesus, and Jesus poured it out on us. Guess what that means? Jesus is God. And what you're seeing right now is the promise of the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit brought about by Jesus, who's at the right hand of the Father. See how he's giving authority to Jesus? He's pointing to him as the Christ, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here's how he concludes, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. See how he started his sermon and he ended his sermon with that point? He says, hey guys, remember Jesus, the one you killed? And then he ends the sermon with, Jesus is God, the Messiah, and you killed him. So one of two things is going to happen now. Either Peter's going to get himself killed or people are gonna get saved. One of those two things are about to happen because that is a bold ending to a sermon. Because Peter just said, guys, you crucified the Messiah and you know what that means. You've been around long enough, you've been devout long enough to know what that means. So how will they respond? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, his whole sermon is, guys, you missed it. You don't get what's going on because you missed it. You missed Jesus. You missed the Messiah. And you killed him. And God raised him from the dead, and he is God. And the weight of Peter's sermon over the course of these verses is just pressing down on these people, and they're like, oh, no. We missed it. And so they say to Peter and to the apostles who are around, they're like, guys, what do we do? We blew it. What do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And look at the response, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 people. 3,000 souls, it says. I had a thought that um, preparing the sermon this week that I would just read it and put my Bible down and just wait for 3,000 people to trust Christ. That's the power of this message. And that's how deeply it cuts. You have to remember who he's talking to. He's just said, here's what all of Scripture said about the Messiah. And then here's what you just saw happen. Jesus wasn't there a thousand years ago. He was there 50 days ago. If the Scripture and the life of Christ don't line up, they don't believe. 
if what Peter is saying doesn't ring true, they're not going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are people that watch Jesus live. These are people that know the Scripture, and they're looking at Peter, and they're saying, oh, no, you're right. We missed it. He was Christ. He says, in Joel, it said, and it shall come to pass that everyone who comes, calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. They say, guys, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. And so as we come to this this morning, that's my question for us. Peter said, guys, you don't understand what you're seeing. You missed the Messiah. Repent. The good news is it's not too late because this new age that comes with the Holy Spirit starts with the ministry of Jesus It continues through the power of the Holy Spirit through his church and his people, and it ends when he comes back. And guess what? He hasn't come back yet, so there's still hope. There is still time to repent and to be baptized. And 3,000 of them said, that sounds like a good idea because we missed it. And so what I would say to us this morning is don't miss it. There is still time to trust in Christ, the chosen one, the Messiah. There is still time. Don't miss it. Repent and be baptized. Don't turn from God, turn to him. You know, the word repent means like a 180. It means turning from and to. Turning from the way I'm living, turning toward Jesus. A lot of times in the church, I think we think of repenting as Well, I'm going to trust Christ. That means I'm going to add him to what I'm doing. I'm just keep going where I'm going. I'll just have some Jesus with me. He says, this is a a total life change. This is about my whole life is aimed at Jesus because of what he's done. So don't miss it. Jesus is who he said he was. Not just a great teacher, not just a prophet. He was the son of God. And he died on the cross and he absorbed the wrath of God aimed at me, at my sin, at my rebellion and rejection of God. He took it all so that I could stand before God as one who trusts in him, justified, totally blameless before Almighty God because of the work of Christ on the cross. And he said, I'll I'll give it to you. You can have it. It's free. It's my gift. You will be my child and I'll call you my own. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you might be thinking, I don't know, I'm, I mean, I try to do the right thing. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. Romans tells us the penalty for sin is death and that everybody has sinned. We're on level ground here. That's a phrase that our student ministries pastor, Andrew Linquist, used, and I love that. We're on level ground here. No matter who you are, we have all sinned. Sunday school teacher, alcoholic, adulterer, missionary, drug addict, pastor, all have sinned. And without the saving work of Christ, we all stand before God with no answer. We are on level ground. We have all sinned. And God says, I can redeem that. I have done the work, and all I ask is that you put your trust in me. The other response I hear a lot to the message, the good news of the Bible, this gift that God offers is that that's a little bit exclusive for me to say that Jesus is the only way. But he says it really clearly 
In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Why is that? Because God's petty and vindictive? No. It's because he's the only one who has the authority to justify us before him. He's the only one with the power to redeem. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you know Jesus. You already have a relationship with Jesus and you're sitting here thinking, yes, somebody in here needs to hear this message this morning. And I would just say for those of us who know Jesus, do you believe the gospel? And I don't just mean do you believe that Jesus died for you and paid for your sin. I mean the whole gospel and all that it implies for you. Because I think there are some of us here this morning that know Jesus and have a relationship with him But there are still things that we believe about ourselves that aren't true. Things like God loves me less when I sin. God doesn't love me as much when I don't obey him or when I sin. And I would just say to you, Romans 5 says otherwise. It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At your lowest, at your worst, when you rejected and rebelled completely against God, he said, I love you enough to send my son and to crush him for you. So don't believe that doesn't mean you're not a punk when you sin. But don't you ever believe God loves you less because you sin. It's just not true. Some of you are here this morning, you think, I know Christ saved me, but now I need to earn it. And I'm going to spend my life earning it back. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved by faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. This is not something you can work off. It is, it is something you revel in and just say thank you because you can spend the rest of your life working really hard for Jesus and totally miss the gospel that he loves you. He loves you. He loved you before you started working. Doesn't mean don't do work for him. Just means don't try to earn it back. You can't. Just say thank you. Some of you are here this morning and you're like, well, I'm not Peter. I'm not bold. I'm not like some of these other people here. I'm not especially gifted. I don't know how God's going to use me. In 2 Corinthians, one of my favorite (laughs) verses says, God says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. There's a reason why Scripture and the people that God uses reads like the island of misfit toys. Why all the people that God uses are cast-offs and fishermen and rejects and stutterers and all those things we talk about all the time. There's a reason God uses those people because God can do amazing things through those people and then he can say, that was me. It's quite clear to all of us that that was me. Do you think I feel qualified to be here this morning in front of you? (laughs) Not at all. And some of you know my story and some of you don't, but I would just say there's a reason why I pleaded with God and said, you've got to think of something else I could do for you. I can't do this. I'm not equipped to be a pastor. I'm not equipped to preach. I'm not equipped to do what you're asking. I can't do it. And God says, I know. I'll do it. I'm just asking you to be faithful. So just do what I ask. All right. God says, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. That's where I will display my glory. Some of you this morning 
feel like my life, I know Jesus, but I'm just covered in sin. I'm covered in sin and I can't escape it. I can't get out of it. And so when I'm confronted with temptation or I'm confronted with an opportunity to sin, I just think, well, what's one more? What is one more sin on the pile? Ephesians says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Do you believe that about God, that he forgives you of your sin? It's not one more on the pile. There's no pile left. He took it. He wore it. He paid for it. It's gone. It's not one more sin on the pile. We talked about Peter and how Jesus redeemed his story. And some of us here this morning, we need Jesus to redeem our story. We need Jesus to redeem us. That's just the truth. Some of us know Jesus already and we need him to redeem our story. Some of you don't know him at all. And you, you're not even sure maybe this morning what that means. And you need Jesus to redeem your story. And he just says, I love you so much. Would you come to me? Would you experience my love? Some of us have missed it. We just missed Jesus. But it's not too late. That's the good news. It is not too late for Jesus to redeem our story. Not because we can will ourselves up and do a great job, but because he's a great God. And he works in broken people. You have your connection card this morning that's on your worship folder. I would ask if you would take that out at this time. If God is tugging at your heart this morning and there's something you need to say, something you need to change, something you need to do, I would just invite you to write that on there to let us know so that we can pray for you. If you want to know Jesus, you want to know what that means, you can put that on there. Tell me more about this. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you need him to redeem your story this morning, would you write that on there? Would you allow us to pray for that? This Tuesday night, we're going to meet as overseers and deacons of our whole church, and we're going to pray for all of those, all of the ones that you submit to us. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going on. That's Peter's sermon. That's his description. I'm going to call the ushers this morning to take our offering and to take your connection cards, and would you allow me to just pray for you as we do that. Father God, we thank you. We just revel this morning in the beauty and the glory of the good news of the gospel. We thank you that you were willing to crush your son on our behalf. We thank you for how much you love us. We pray now that you would receive our offering and our worship, all of it, as an act of worship for you. Lord, that you would hear our words, our songs, receive our gifts, and be glorified. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.